0: Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context. Today, we're talking to Dr. Terry Linhart on teaching the next generations. I stumbled across this book, thanks to our friends at Baker. And uh, just as a little shout out to Baker Academic, they have been so great to providing context with some materials. So if you don't know about Baker, just search Baker Academic, and there's a plethora of great text and textbooks But this one caught my attention. Dr. Linhart has a PhD from Purdue. He is the Director of Youth Ministry and Adolescent Studies, Professor of Youth Ministry, Chair of the Department of Religion and Philosophy at Bethel College in Mishawaka, Indiana. That's a lot of responsibility, Terry. He has served as a full-time youth ministry pastor for 15 years. He was with Youth for Christ. Dr. Linhart is the speaker. A researcher, a consultant, author of six books and counting numerous articles. He directs Youth Specialties Academic Support Network. That sounds like a, you know, hi, my name's Michael. Uh, Anyway, he's a member of the Ministry of Councils for National Network of Youth Ministries. He's also active in the Association of Youth Ministries. Educators, first of all, Terry, thanks for joining the program. But talk to me a little bit about Youth for Christ.
1: Yeah, so that's how I got my start. It's an interesting story, Michael. When I was in high school, I uh, and this is going to play into the role of a good teacher. I never went to campus life in my high school. I I didn't understand it was evangelistic. I thought they were all hypocrites, and yet I was really great friends with the (laughs) staff guy, Bill Weberling, who had a big influence on my life. And I built a relationship with him. And I'd go help him set up meetings, but I'd never go myself as a kid. And so it's Uh, God's great. I love it. Yeah, I'm in high school, and then it's God's Grand Laugh that I came out of college with a music degree, but called the Youth Ministry, and YFC (laughs) offers me a job, and I do it. I end up being one of their national trainers a few years later. So it's just like, I just uh, love Youth for Christ, and very excited that you know we're developing a partnership here at Bethel and helping them with their staff development now, too. So coming back full circle, but what a great organization, a great place to learn how to be on the front lines, sharing the gospel in the world.
0: Well, listen, when I saw this textbook, I'm almost 65 here in no time flat, and my oldest daughter, Hannah, reminds me (laughs) often, Dad, you don't have to talk about how old you are, but I am. I'm a dinosaur, Terry. And I think in such, the way I was trained, the way my generation was trained is so foreign to pedagogy today. And so one of the reasons I was attracted to your text, and by the way, for our friends listening, this is a compilation. How many authors did you have contribute, Terry? Do you remember?
1: About About 24.
0: And each of them have a subject matter expertise area. Ones about discipleship. Ones about the theology of education. The life of a teacher by Bob McRae, a professor at Moody Bible Institute. On and on it goes. So these are you went out and found the experts in certain areas. Did you come up with the categories? Was that your
1: genius? Uh, not oh, genius. Yeah, something. Well, you know, so here's the the purpose of the book was that we, we needed in the field of teaching at the college level, we needed a textbook that wasn't trying to do everything but really focused on teaching. I call it like a, a spine for a teacher that he or she can take it into their class mm-hmm. and still, you know, bring in the supplemental readings around their denominational affiliation right. and everything. But the basics, we didn't talk about the history of education or the philosophy, you know, all this background stuff, just about teaching. And so it was a collective... This among the AYME members where we said, hey, we need a new textbook. And I just I jumped at it. And I just then, through my relationships, picked people that I knew were experts in a certain area. And they all agreed to it. Everyone that I asked said yes. I was grateful for that. But at the same time, sorry, Michael, I wanted to also have a book that someone who wasn't in academics, even a volunteer, could pull it off the shelf. So I made all the academics... Yeah limit their chapters to 4,000 words, Yeah, you know which they hate yeah. it, But for us in the field, it really helps. And so that's what it's meant to be, a reference that you can have on your shelf. And if you say, hey, I really want to learn a little bit about this, pull it off, read a chapter, and you're good to go.
0: Well, what piqued my interest on your book, Cindy and I have done a marriage mentor program it's a two-year program that meets weekly for young couples, and we've learned a lot over the decades, and the last group I did, I was so (laughs) frustrated, Terry, because I felt like I was no longer able to teach the pedagogy, my ability to, you know, instruct, here's a propositional truth, let me help you be a critical thinker, and they're looking at me using a phone, refusing to buy the Mm -hmm. texts, refusing to have a physical mm-hmm. Bible. And in fact, I love in your introduction, the, I laughed out <laughs> loud when I read that line that said, other critics suggest that consumerism and media-saturated world full of bite-sized information and search engine expediency produce less intelligence generation I went, yeah, right. <laughs> and then you say, <laughs> the most common question is, where is the Wi-Fi? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> and I thought that was illustrative of where right. I am. Is this dinosaur going? Okay, we need a next generation—no pun mm-hmm. intended—of guys like you, and you know, your, and your contributors who are saying, "How do we teach this generation? Their retention is different. Their access to information is unprecedentedly easy, but what are they getting?" So anyway, lots of questions. Let's jump in. I I came up with a few just to get us going. Give me a definition of next generations.
1: So for the, most of us in the field right now, we're saying 11 to 25 years of age. And the reason is that a lot of churches realize that fifth graders are functioning like young adolescents. So stick a pin at, at like 17 years old, say that's the middle of adolescence, and go eight years in either direction roughly. And the reality is that adolescence extends now to about 25. Uh, a lot of guys and gals coming out of colleges or you know high schools uh, don't have it all figured out. It takes a little while. So uh, we tend to have next-gen generation ministries too. So we tried to incorporate that as our definition of the next generation.
0: And, and let me encourage our folks again, this is not a textbooks only. And the reason I wanted to bring Terry on the broadcast was to encourage, because I have a lot of peer at my age that have our grandparents and younger parents going, how do I teach my kids? Mm. And with public school's in mm. such a, let's just say a mess, mm. and uh, we can't all afford private schools and necessarily Christian schools aren't going to fix some of this. So homeschoolers and tutorials have really taken a step forward, but that's off track. You mentioned um, 17, uh, just a sidebar question. In the 20 plus years issue you've been doing this, give me two or three indicators that have changed between a 17 year old when you began and a 17 year old today.
1: Yeah. Well, I even bump it to an 18 year old. So I think The assumption that those of us who are older make is with an 18-year-old that they've got their identity piece figured out. And it's fairly clear that the research shows that they're just trying to get through high school and then they'll figure it out. So at the college level now, we're seeing the work being done here with 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds that we used to do. 15 and 16, trying to figure it out. And the culture as a whole allows for a delayed decision on what they're going to do as a vocation or a career or calling. So I would say it's just, in general, my thumbnail touched I'm not a cynic of development, that some of that identity piece is pushed later in life now, whereas before it was being done at the end of high school. I taught for uh, about three years-ish
0: at my former church in Nashville, a young adult group, and it would range from maybe 120 to 250 on a given night. But the delayed adolescence, and especially with the young men, was so stark, Terry. Mm-hmm. The young women were going for their masters, their PhDs, some were going for medical degrees, MDs, and the guys were at home playing games online, living much like a college life, you know, and, and multiple guys in a house. Rampant with pornography, rampant with just indolence. And it was so challenging. And again, that's where I began feeling old was how do I help these so-called delayed adolescent young men in particular? Have you seen that trend change? Are are women still leading in this regard, young women?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting that you brought that up. And this is kind of an insider's tip to working with young uh, adults. So ages 18 to 22. One of the mistakes, and it's not a mistake here, but the women here at the colleges that, that I work with are just a little farther along in their ability to communicate and connect. And they have a little more together that it's easy to bypass the the men and kind of give up on them as immature. Yeah. And they're playing the video games. Everything you just described, I'm sitting there going, yeah, that's how it is. And yet sometimes at 22, 23, the moment they graduate and they could be, you know, just have a bad track record of grades and participation or whatever, sometimes there's a little thing that snaps at age 22 mm. or 23 and they take a step forward and they choose to be different. And so I have encouraged myself, don't give up on the guys just as they act immature. And I don't worry about people until they're 30. I say, show me at 30 how they're yeah. doing and then we'll evaluate whether they're on track or not. So I think it was
0: Meg Jay's book, the, the Defining Decade. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, no. secular mm-hmm. book out of California. Mm-hmm. And she beamed it. She talked about the very thing you articulated and she said if you lose that decade of 20s where they're getting degrees, getting married, having children and you don't engage by 30 It wasn't a happy scenario for her. She said, there's no real catching up and you'll watch your peers, you know, advance socioeconomically, so forth and so on. But I appreciate the hope we still have. Mm -hmm. Let me go back to here. Um, Talk to me about spiritual formation v. discipleship because I get a little, candidly, I get a little concerned when I hear the emphasis on spiritual formation. This word ain't in the Bible. Discipleship is teaching others. Or am I wrong here is there a, that big a difference in what's really happening?
1: So I think the, perhaps the concern that you and others have regarding spiritual formation is that it can be a little bit of a self-centered approach to it. And I love Bob Mulholland's definition of that, an Asbury professor of spiritual formation. He says, it's being conformed to the image of Christ, so it's Christ-centered, for the sake of others. And that gives a out pouring of why. And so I look at proper scriptural spiritual formation, the development of the heart as a ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life. And if it's that, then I'm super comfortable with it. When it becomes something where I'm chasing an experience or some feeling, then we're then we're off track. So for me that's spiritual formation, but the outpouring then is it's for because I'm conforming to Christ for the sake of others, which means then it's tied to that discipleship, which is the process of learning Jesus's teaching and following him. So I think of one as a heart development, and the other one is the practice then as a result of that.
0: An unfair question, perhaps, or one we can't answer, when you hear that term used broadly, I hear the experiential theology you touched on mm-hmm. far more than a biblical theology. Am I am I wrong there? I know it's anecdotal.
1: Well, and it's person to person, obviously. The goal is, of course, growing in maturity and faithfulness in Christ. And if that's happening, then great. If you're just you know swinging from experience to experience, and we see that a lot in ministry and churches, and, and we'll get into a little bit of that maybe a little later here. Yep. But that's where education kicks in, where we go, okay, we got to make sure in this experiential culture that we're in, right? That we're we're developing people for following Christ.
0: When we talk about pedagogy, I use that term. It again, that's a dinosaur term. In broad terms, we always have to adapt. I think of teaching my grandchildren at, you know, three versus four versus what their interests are it's very different and I was just I wrote these down I think I sent them to you from a, a green chalkboard with white chalk <laughs> to whiteboards to overhead projectors to I, I forgot the film strip projectors to flannel graph to interactive screens to notebooks tablets and phones talk to me about you know goodness how things have changed
1: So technology is the disruptor in this. You mentioned it with your last group that you led where they're on their phones and they're not looking at books. And yet at the same time, in the middle of this is still that You know, Howard Hendricks, Teaching to Change Lives, Relationship Between Teacher and and Learner. And, And that's where we have to focus. The methods have to vary, okay? So my first thumbnail things, encouragement to those of you who are listening, is use multiple methods, try on different things. It's like I ascribe to the brain is not a muscle. But as Einstein said, it kind of functions like one. And so you have to stretch it. And if you're an exercise person, you know, you, you don't just do bicep curls, you do triceps as well. And You know, it's just different exercises, stretch the muscles differently. And so in this day and age, multiple methods are good. And at the same time, I think in the midst of it, I'm less concerned about the methods and more about What's in the method, and if I'm a musician or a want be musician, I guess would be better <laughs> in that. And the music that we love has a melody we can sing and remember. It's catchy, and it the words say something that we normally wouldn't say in spoken language. And if you think of all the great hymns, all the great worship choruses that endure, they're singable, and they say things that we need to say from the heart. And so I think when we teach, that's how we need to teach. We need to be able to deliver material that's fresh in a way that connects with them, whether it's on a green chalkboard or not. And I went and did a seminar in Norway at the School of Theology there, and in their one program, they use no PowerPoints. They only use four dry erase markers because they want that cognitive interaction. They want the students to watch the drawing. So even though there's technology, even though it's an abundance, it doesn't always relate So I would say don't give up on so, there's a part of me that thinks uh, well, we see it on YouTube now, a YouTube version of this, but you know there's a room for some sort of visual like a don't laugh at me, a flannel graph type thing too. you know that's not that's not bad for kids to see a visual of a Bible story that they'll remember long term in that. so
0: and if you inject neuroplasticity and neuroscience into this, the touching and that's I, I saw a presentation about a year ago for uh, charter schools a, out of uh, Hillsdale. These guys are, they are really thinking way outside the box with charter schools. But the number one thing in this charter school curriculum that they were after, if my memory serves, was handwriting. Physical handwriting. Mm -hmm. Second was diagramming. Mm -hmm. And from the neuroplasticity we know, I had one of my kids went through a program you are probably aware of called NILD the National Institute for Learning the Disabled? Uh, yeah. And it started uh, out of uh, brain injuries and traumas, mm. and it developed to uh, you can actually retrain the brain. So there's close to 200 teaching modalities they use, Terry, but one of them is a chalkboard at the child's shoulder level with like one of those music scores. You write the four lines across, and they have to write with a piece of chalk in a chalk holder, that tactical thing, as fine a line as they can write, and they have to explain, I'm going up, right, over, left, down. Hmm. They have to talk through it. And as they grow, you throw math problems. You throw multiplication problems. While they're doing this all simultaneously. So they're using the tactile response, being able to communicate. And they've shown a demonstrable improvement with people that have brain injury or learning disability. My child, who was six or seven months behind in her reading comprehension, advanced six months ahead of her peer in about nine weeks. It was extraordinary. So back to modalities for just a second. you know I, I think the hard part is, and I I made a note of this, I had a grad professor who was still using the handwritten paper, of the notes he'd taken, and they were yellow, not because they were a yellow <laughs> pad, they were yellow with age. And he was turning the lecturing from those, and I'm going, My lands, the content's probably accurate, but you got to up
1: your game. <laughs> well, and, and so here's, here's the thing with that. Yeah, I mean, um, Paulo Freire called that the banking method. It's like, I have this set of information and I'm going to give it to you. Well, this is the pedagogical issue of the day. You can't just do the banking method anymore. Maybe in some Mm. situations where there's a motivation by the students where, you know, that long lecture is helpful, but you've got to help students engage and touch the material in some way. You talked about uh, neuroplasticity and neuroscience. Brain science has shown us in the catchphrase we use, In Christian education is what fires together, wires together. Hmm, Meaning, as long as the lines, you know. So this is why, uh, for instance, an improv comedian, they can get up there. And do improv where you and I would be going. Oh, I could get there, but they've been doing it for so long. They're bring fires along those lines. I'm an analyst. I'm a researcher. I can get into large amounts of data and stats, and I can, you know, in, in qualitative, I can fire along those lines because that's what I'm familiar with. A preacher can do that. A teacher. So this is why you want to help students try on different things for size because they learn differently. Uh, not everybody's the same in your audience, and that's why it's helpful to to vary your methods.
0: Years ago, uh, Bruce Wilkinson wrote a companion volume to The Seven Laws of the Teacher called The Seven Laws of the Learner. Mm-hmm. And I was an early adopter of that, Terry, and I remember he had a, and that day it was fairly cutting edge, but it was a cartoon graph of a semicircle. And he had the typical uh, lecturer with the crazy hair and all the books, <laughs> the <scholar's> scholar scholar. <laughs> and he had a guy sitting on the edge of a desk with a tennis bag and a cup of coffee swinging his legs. And he had a guy on the far right that had overheads and presentations and film strips. And he had you, uh, arbitrarily say, okay, are you more the content guy or are you more the relational guy or are you more the sort of the whistles and bells? And then he said, okay, if you were 10% more of the other one, think how that would impact your teaching ability to the learner. And it was just one of those visuals I'll never forget, obviously. But I think that convicted me because I'm the content guy. I'm terrible with overheads. I'm terrible with, you know, any type of physical illustration. So point being, we need to learn. Let's, let's continue. I'm prattling. How, how do we guard? You intimated to this because one of my concerns watching youth ministry in particular and even even preachers, which I have a hard time watching anymore, They're clever. They're cutting edge. They got what I call flash paper. And it's, you know, 8 million views on YouTube. And there's no content, Terry. There's no theology. It's just a
1: cool thing to watch. Well, this is, again, I think the subtle purpose of why Terry Linhart wanted to do a book like this is I I want to champion teaching again. Because in youth ministry, we were doing many worship experiences. And I'm a music guy, and I love—music is how I, I have a soundtrack on all the time. But we were doing you know, this worship experience in the dark. There wasn't a relationship. And I remember the old days of you know, more Bible teaching, and I remember a relationship that happened outside the four walls of the church with my youth pastor— and so that's why I wanted to get back to that—that that ability to teach and content. And so I agree, and I think this is churchwide. It's not just uh, next generation. It's—it's huh? it's reactionary. And here's the deal: social media is shaping us to go this direction. We have to fight this social media animal of reactionary responses that's shallow. So we'll see a headline, we'll retweet it. We'll put it on Facebook. And we haven't done the research on this. And there's stuff about learning, you know, about that our attention span is shorter than a goldfish now. Well if you dig just a look, it doesn't even take a half hour, you'll realize that's not quite true. <laughs> and it's very nuanced in this. And most of life is deeper and nuanced than this. So I do think that we need to step out from just using templates and, and I wrote two books um talk sheets with you specialties on the life of Christ. And they're meant for a volunteer to take it and use it. And they've been very successful and widely used. Uh, but there's variance in there. We have to be very careful with this recreating templates and and still work to rather step out and inspire people in the hope that's found in Jesus as we follow him.
0: Well, I used to do pastor's workshops and work with some younger pastors and I would always encourage them. I said, look, before you get the flash paper, or the really cool illustration, what is this passage telling mm-hmm. us? And I'm, I'm not necessarily a big idea fan, but I think Robinson was, was very wise in saying, what is the passage talking about? What is it saying about what it's talking about? Subject compliment. And then I back up further and I go, if I can't come up with that, what characteristic or characteristics of God is this story passage teaching me? How does the human respond to the characteristic or the work of God, he or she is seeing in that passage. Now I've said, then do your homework there, and then if you have time, bolt on the flash paper, figure out a clever, you know, gizmo or whatever. But in my experience, the illustration generally overpowered the biblical point, point. and that's what concerned me: was do I leave people dry and bored, or do I give them a, a meaningful illustration? My favorite story was I was teaching some big conference and, you know, people would stand in line to talk to you. This guy said, came up and he was, you know, interesting, but he said, I'll never forget the story you told about the tomato. I have no idea what he's talking uh, about. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wondered, <laughs> but it could have been somebody else. It didn't matter. But he, ta- you know, that's what he remembered. Not about you know the efficacy of grace or yeah. I mean, anyway, um, again, I'm proud. Yeah,
1: no, the big idea is really helpful, and I think that's how that solves a lot of problems. Is what is the big idea, and then even tie it back to you know, hopefully, um, you know. I know volunteers may have a range of understanding about systematic theology, but what, where in the in the theology, the Christian theology, does that connect to, and is that you know appropriate for our tradition and things like that? Because and then you work into, you know, how to, how can I illustrate that? Jesus was a great illustrator, and does the illustration yes. serve the concept well, you know, and and or does it detract from it? And I think it's, you know, we get into videos, and, and that's another thing, too. Visuals matter. You see it's a lot now. I think this is really good. Churches are moving away from PowerPoints sort or of this text wall-to-wall, that content dump only, and they're figuring out ways to illustrate things, have conversations on stage. I find that in general in the last two or three years i'm more encouraged uh with some of the efforts seen i feel like there's a resurgence and a recommitment to the gospel and i'm less probably worried now than i was when we wrote the book excellent a little bit of a departure from your text but let
0: me ask your thoughts on education we hear this comment now it's more indoctrination than it is teaching young students to be critical thinkers
1: yeah well i yeah and of course I think you want people to be able to think well. And, and and again, I, you know, Einstein's the idea of the bicep, he says education is not the learning of facts, but it's the training of the mind to think. And so if you think of, if I were teaching, again, at a local youth group level, I'd do the lesson like I did, but then I would have... Uh, like a lab time after it where they practice it you know because now if i go in and i'll ask a youth pastor I'll, I'll watch the or you know a church service and i'll say how do you think it went and they say i think it went well and i say well how do you know and then you know it's people nodding and looking or you know not falling asleep but the reality is we haven't given them a time to exercise what it is we're yeah. teaching and i think that's where the experiential but different experience right it's p- more of practice experience that we're acting out And trying on stuff. There's some sort of way that we're going to respond to it. Maybe just two questions about something. Because you do want to have them learn how to live, because that's discipleship, right? Critical thinking is, how do I respond in this moment? So this is the advantage now of technology, okay? So because of, if we create videos that captivate and tell a story well 5 to 7 minute dramas perhaps it's like going back to the 70s where we used to do skits and stuff to introduce a topic in in youth ministry circles us in young life and youth for christ we did a lot more of that you know trying to captivate people's attention so now we can kind of draw them in and hook them a little bit before we uh, deliver the content mm-hmm.
0: let's talk about screen time uh, I, I don't want to throw the whole thing out there's no doubt there are benefits i mean the fact that i can pull out my logos on my tablet, my phone, if necessary, my computer. I mean, I have friends that are older than me that would never, ever use Logos or something like that. And I go, listen, the time you go pulling, you know, Kittle or four commentaries or 10 commentaries off the shelf, you click and it's on your screen. So I'm not dissing screens and I'm not dissing the technology, but what are some dangers you've seen?
1: Well, it's... um. Gosh, there's so much. We're in the middle of this right now, to be honest. The research is mixed and not clear yet where we are, but there's a habit of. So for me, I'm starting to identify that there's such a dependency on this thing that I'm grabbing it and looking at it. And if I step back and I just prayerfully ask, why am I looking, checking my phone? The answer is habit, you know. And the research is pretty clear that, you know, checking your phone right before you go to bed and grabbing it first in the morning to check whatever we're checking creates a bit of an anxiety. And I think this is one of the issues. It's not a spiritual answer as as much right now, but as the research is starting to show that our checking of the phone is that we're trying to stay in touch to make sure something's not wrong in the world. It creates a little bit of worry. And the research on Instagram and young people is pretty high that they're feeling a sense of anxiety as well because they're missing out. Other people's lives are better than theirs. So you have that. And one of the things that's happening and research is showing this is that when social media usage is high, memory retention in those periods, a day is generally when the research is being done. this is with elderly and young people alike. These people did the full range of adults. When social media usage is high, in that day, memory retention is low. And the reason is related to some emotional discomfort. So this, this social media thing is creating a sense of having to stay in control, and connected, and the reality is that phones are companions. I think that iPhone was significant. I think MTV and '81 also was significant in that um, we've it's just so it's divided up our you know commercials now. Basically, every second or two, they're changing what you're looking at. If you just time it out, you can almost clap a sequence, and you're looking at something new. Yeah. Any any movie before '80 is these slow edits, and there's you painful. Know, it's a, yeah, painful yeah. by
0: today's standards. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And that's how we call it. We call it painful because it's so uncomfortable for us. Now we're just used to this pace. And so that's part of it too, is the pace just creates this sense of rushness. And so finding space away from our phones, be able to do that. And, um, I think that's helpful. But also, the iPhones are great tools, and, and I know there's there's uh, Samsung users out there as well. I don't mean to be disparaging to that, but, you know, but, um, but it, no, no, no. yeah. 78 million more, but anyway.
0: Yeah. Uh, but let me let me inject yeah. here because um, we had a guest on, and I, I boy, forgive me, I can't remember his name, but he was a PhD student who had done a little beta test with, Believe it was scripture memory Mm. on your phone Mm. with men and women, grad students. And the men's retention was like terrible (laughs) compared to the women's. Now, we all know that women typically are better students and smarter at that developmental chapter of their life. But, and he was very, very loath to make projections based on his tiny sample. But, you know, I, I just, again, the tactile nature of taking your book. Underlining, writing in the margin, <laughs> saying, Well, what about this? Or I need to check this later. Uh, to me, that neuroscience, neuroplasticity, just it seems so much more indelible than. Thumb, 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 thumb. And, you know, even if I'm getting the headline. Anyway, I'm preeling again.
1: No, that's, but you're onto something there because that, you know, that hit of that dopamine of something new every time when you're yeah. scrolling is a real thing. And and we can get addicted to that, and it can make us feel good, and we can escape from things in life. And so I think that there is this distracted culture. Right? I think the, the joke online sometimes is someone said, if I had a dollar for every time I got distracted, I wish I had a puppy. You know, it's just... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. And so this has direct implications for what we're I'm trying to I'm glad you
0: do. didn't say cat. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> I, you know, this has direct implications for our, our work is that yes. we really need to be changing what we're doing every seven minutes or so, or we've lost people. And that's adults too. We're just, yeah. you go to an airport and all ages are on their phones. And so this is... It's a powerful tool, but at the same time, it's shaping how we interact with the world. So we need to enter. So I just, Ken Davis used to do this years ago. He said, every seven minutes, you should tell a joke. You should have a humorous moment when you're speaking. And we need to do that. And, the, and I, my pastor's great at that. He, every seven minutes, you can tell he's got a break. He understands it and moves. If I teach an hour and 20 minute class here, I give a 10 minute break in the middle. I don't expect them to sit for 80 minutes, you know? And no. I'll just say, go. And that's unusual even here, but I just know we got to reset. You know, and a joke allows you to reset something. Change yeah. allows people to. I'm gonna, I'm gonna re up with you for another seven minutes.
0: Hendricks talked about that in his own delivery style, and he said he learned it from uh, Zig Ziglar. Yeah, that Zig Ziglar said about every three to five minutes, yeah. you need to say something that's funny or off off topic because it'll reset the hearer. Going wait, what I miss, and then they start paying attention for longer durations. We're on the subject sort of about neuroplasticity, neuroscience, I'm curious of your thoughts and some of your subject matter experts on ebook versus textbook.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know that we know that, but in the publishing world, we've seen ebooks flatten off in sales. Oh, they're
0: they're not even comparisons. I mean, maybe maybe in text world, but in popular reading, people aren't getting ebooks. They're getting the, the real text.
1: Yeah, you talked about the tactile thing earlier and the writing on the board for persons who are in recovery. I, in the, in the writing world, Julia Cameron, you may know her, she used to talk about morning pages that you would do. And you just get up and you write three pages on a piece of paper. It doesn't matter what you write. And it's just to teach your brain to be creative, to get into the writing mode. And, um, and I even like hearing the scratch-scratch of a pencil, not even a pen, yeah. on the paper because it just feels that. And, and in that moment – and I just write whatever comes to mind, and it's not very good, but it's part of the devotional morning that I have every morning. And uh, I don't even go back and read it, but it's just a practice. And so I just think that that's helpful. You know, you're talking about uh, ebook versus book, and you were talking about the two professors. Uh, you know, the one that's got all the film strips and overhead, and then the one that's kind of sitting on the table with the hair. You know, that's global and analytic thinking, and those yep. are really the two divides. And, and Karen Jones in, in the book there mm-hmm. does a great job of helping us understand. And different types of learning and helping. And it'd be very helpful for parents and even volunteers to go this and and I call it the Nick Teeple rule. And if Nick's listening, he'll he'll get a kick out of this. So I had this guy who's a really motivated fifth grader, wanted to be in my youth group at my church. And he was really advanced and disruptive and and just energetic. And and every time I would teach the middle school, I would think this, this fifth grader wasn't paying attention. But I'd ask him a question, and he would have the answer for it. He was tracking the whole time. And there's different types of attention. And that's the big thing that we need to understand. Sometimes people can have sustained and selective attention if they're motivated. This is the key if they're motivated to learn. And if we're not connecting with their motivation, we can have all the flash paper and all the great content, and they'll never connect with us. It's when the problem is, is the multitasking and the divided attention. That's where we're really not learning. So people can track with you if they're really motivated to do it. And I think that's where, to me, and the discipleship factor, the teacher-learner relationship, and this is from another book I wrote with Dave Ron, where we said you really need to get close enough to inspect what's going on in the lives of those you're teaching. And if you have that relationship, you can really see what the Holy Spirit's doing, and it may be very different from what you see from a distance. So many
0: things that you have said triggered other things, but I do want to ask a question and then come back. So when you step back on all of this work, Terry, as well, you know, this text as well as others, your contributors, give the Sunday school teacher, the student ministry staff person, the volunteer, the Christian school, the parent and again, so many homeschool tutorial parents now, and even pastors, give us, you know, the Terry Linhart 234 primer, (laughs) at least understand this about teaching
1: the next generation. Sure, yeah, well, the first thing is don't give up and don't despair. There's a famous quote that says that each generation blames and fears the young who grow up and do the same. And so it's easy to always point your fingers at young people And uh, at the same time, there's a lot of really good things going on in in young people. And so that's the first thing. Don't give up. Don't despair. Hang in there. Follow through on the call that that God's placed on your life in whatever role you're in for however long you're in it. Secondly is be inspiring and do that first by listening to the people you're teaching. And so Dave Ron, I used to watch him. He did an evangelistic ministry at an urban school, and he'd pack it out. Kids would come from all over, and I went to him, and I said, Dave, how is it that you get so many students to come who are non-Christians and listen to a gospel presentation? And his answer was quick. He says, I listen. And all week long, he's at the school listening to where students are, and then on Monday nights, he's doing something that relates to what they care about. And so if we're not connecting to what people care about, we're swimming upstream. And the third thing then is be inspiring by varying your methods a little bit. I think that's the biggest thing. And try on different stuff. One time I was preaching a sermon on a Sunday morning, and it was the nature of the content. I don't remember what the sermon title was and whatever. It could have been about worship, to be honest. And I preached the sermon first before we sang songs. And it really threw people off, and, and the church was small enough, only a couple hundred. We had turned fifty in that service, and the other one, and I said, "This is throwing you off." And I remember Jerry Flack on the front row saying, "Yeah, it does." You know, he's one of those guys that talks <laughs> back to you. But but then, but it was amazing, Michael. It was the singing meant something because it was a response to what the word had for us that day, and so that was great. So I, and the fourth thing is also change the environment, especially with younger students. You can get a middle schooler who's, you know, feeling out and they're lonely and they're feeling down and they're and you just change the environment and suddenly they feel better. Right. Environment really matters. So this is where I love the idea of retreats and camps and mission trips. And in fact, I I think retreats are powerful. Even just one night away somewhere where you can we're doing this as an extended family this Christmas. We're gonna have a two day Time together. It's going to be a spiritual retreat because of this year we've been through together through the pandemic. And so, super excited for that. And yeah, I'm near Notre Dame. So, we always say, you know, the the motto here is play like a champion. But, you know, as a teacher, work like a champion because it's worth your best effort.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a good word. A couple of things triggered. When I was at a church in Northern Virginia serving, we had a lot of military, and there was a two star, at the time, two star Air Force general. He went on to get his third, but he taught fifth grade boys. And very unassuming guy. And he ran everything by me as a senior pastor because of this whole authority, you know, structure that he lived in. And he said he wanted to know if it was okay. He asked the boys, what are the one, two questions you want to ask God? And, you know, they were all over the map from their sexuality, from, you know, whatever. And so he came back with a lesson plan that answered each of those questions. And of course, he was going to be in the word. I wasn't worried about that, but I thought how creative for this pretty wound tight by the book Air Force officer to say, no, I can't just dump information and ask them to give me information back. Other thing was you made a comment about varying things. Hendricks had a a line that you may impress from a distance, but Mm. you impact up close. And he said, just because you're up front, you know, dazzling them doesn't really impact them. Impact is, back to your point, asking questions, listening to what the need is, but then not just solving the need, but addressing the problem behind the need, right?
1: Well, Jesus is the model for this. You know, here's the blind man calling from the side and being, you know, by the followers of Jesus. Jesus comes to him. Yeah, he says, What do you want me to do for you? What do you you want? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because because here's the powerful moment in those things. And uh, I think Ruth Haley Barton says this, you know, naming our needs in front of Jesus to Jesus is a really powerful thing. And he knew that. And I think that when you learn what people feel like they need, whether it's real or not, you know, and a 14-year-old's need, you, you know, you may think other... I, I love that example, a two-star general doing that. I think that's a powerful example. And... and um, if everybody did that, if everybody went out and just asked that question and then shaped their spring curriculum, their winter curriculum here if, along those lines and had, a, at the end of it, a time to talk about it too, not just a one-way conversation, it would be life-changing. And, of course, as you said, you know, focus on the big idea that's found in Scripture and theology in the middle of it.
0: Dr. Terry Linhart, he is the author, uh, I guess general editor, of Teaching the Next Generations, a comprehensive guide for teaching Christian formation and in my book I put discipleship uh, <laughs> sorry but in, in any event a whole great set of chapters from subject matter experts who have spent their life as academic scholars and practitioners on how to help younger folks think about the Lord about discipleship about what it means to grow, Terry, we need guys and, and gals like you who are committed to this. I appreciate your labors. I know it's not easy to do a, a project like this. I know it probably took a lot more energy than you thought, <laughs> but thanks for the effort. And I, I pray and hope that God will use you in, uh, in teaching. And uh, hopefully some of our friends who are listening will pick this up and share it with their student ministries, pastors, or, or whatever they're called today to help them just provoke them in a few of the areas you and I've talked about. So anyway, blessings, friend. Thanks yeah. so much for your time.
1: Yeah, thank you. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you
0: consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.